my name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. In its heyday, which ranged from the 1970s through to the mid-1980s, Lancashire's file course was regarded as the hottest winter inshore cod fishery in the country. Hard to believe, I know, with the way things are now in 2011. Though, as we'll touch on towards the end of this podcast, this may be about to change. It would seem that I am one of an ever-decreasing group of people who was actually around for the start, climax and sadly the decline of this particular event. An episode which with the beauty of hindsight we can now see was so special that its importance as a piece of historical fact needs to be accurately recorded for the benefit of future generations of anglers to look back on. At the time we didn't bother shooting much in the way of photographs or video footage. I suppose we naively thought that it would always be that way and therefore didn't see the need. Though I do have some black and white images, plus a few colour transparencies of some of the better fish, and maybe even half an hour or so of old VHS video footage of some of the boats and the people fishing for these things. Otherwise, I think that's pretty much it. Bob Gledhill, who now sadly is no longer with us, will also have had a good photo selection of most of the trophy fish. But whether these are still in existence is anybody's guess leaving this account as possibly the most complete first-hand record of the story told as it really was. Even with the rose-tinted glasses removed, it was a very special time. But was it really as good as we like to think it was, or as the angling press made out back then at the time? It's true, there was a genuine expectation that the next fish coming along could be that £20-pounder. If you got really lucky, maybe even a 30 and on at least one occasion, a monster topping £40 and all within a couple of miles of the shore from small boats which by today's standards now look quite primitive. With me here is my fishing buddy and often fishing partner over that ten year period, Brian Douglas, who I have to say, and with more than a hint of envy, caught as many, if not more, big file course cod than most people throughout the whole jumbo era. So what then, for you, immediately comes to mind when I mention the phrase file jumbo cod era? When you're younger, you automatically have an enthusiasm for fishing, and certainly with the fish that were knocking about at that time, it was certainly something that you didn't take much to stimulate. Um, every opportunity, watching the weather that could be got out, I was there making the best of it. But the rewards were very good. Not to say that you got big cod every time you went, but you can virtually guarantee that if you got out fishing, you get cod of some size or other, and hopefully along the way some of the better ones that happened to be knocking about at that time. Now sometimes we didn't always fish in the same boat, sometimes we did, sometimes we didn't, sometimes you was out with your dad Bob, and other times we'd go our own different ways, but we fished a lot together and we saw a lot of good fish. What do you put that down to? Well obviously the stocks at that time were better. It's always been a mystery why the big fish actually came into Rossell in the first place, because there was no distinguishing features that you would think would drag cod in. Obviously they were there to feed before going off and probably creating future stocks. And what do you think of this reputation that I mentioned earlier about it being the top UK cod mark? Was that deserved or was it not? I think it was. Um, Certainly it came from miles around to fish the coast. I know we had friends used to come up from Wales to sample the, uh, the cod fishing that was available at that time. And when you think, they used to do quite well as well, so you didn't have to be a master fisherman to actually get cod. meant that if you're out there with good bait, it gave you a chance of getting in amongst the better fish. 
Now, from memory, it stayed pretty consistent for probably around about 10 years, although I'll define the term consistent as we go along. Then it started to slip into decline. What do you recall about that period? Was it sudden? Was it noticeable? Or did it just sort of slowly peter away? Most winters, you used to get a few cod in the 30s, and then all of a sudden you used to find that the following years you were, you were struggling to get some of the better fish. They might only be into the odd 20s, and as the decline went on, if you got a double figure fish after that, you were doing well until what you've got today. And I can honestly say that I don't think there's been a double fish caught off the foul course for quite a number of years now. Right then, let's define that word consistent, certainly in, uh, in foul cod terms. Let's talk about just exactly what consistent means. What do you see as being consistency with what we have at that time? Well, I think even now, through the, the early winter months, November into December, if you manage to get out and the weather permits it, you can still get quite a few cod. But when I mention cod, if you get cod up to five or six pounds, you're doing quite well. Some trips you really get quite good numbers. But I think you've always had that. But then get up to Christmas and into the new year, that's when the bigger cod, your jumbos as they call them, used to come in and take over. It's that side of the things that seems to have completely gone now. Certainly in my own case, over the last few years, through the latter end months of the year, I've got a few coddling. But then after Christmas, I've struggled to, to get very much at all. Just the odd fish here, there, but even then not of any size. And when the jumbos came in, it, it seemed to dispel all the other fish as well. It seemed to drop in numbers of the smaller fish. So that meant that sometimes you'd be spending quite literally hours and hours and hours waiting for that one bite that you wanted. Other days you had good days, but obviously you had long waits as well. You always felt as if you had a chance of getting these fish, but there wasn't really a good supporting catch of other fish, and that became progressively less as the months went on towards the end of the season. That's because the smaller fish tend to disappear to a degree, leaving the bigger ones behind. But what you knew, if you got a, a bite in the early months of the year, January, February, that you have a chance that it was going to be a better fish. Now, you're lucky if you get a fish during those months. So the actual time of things then was the cod would come in generally around about, what, October time? You had small fish first off and then you'd get a few better ones, maybe, I don't know, four, five, six pounds in the run to Christmas and then the bigger ones would come in, the smaller ones would go at that stage and you got the big ones right through to the end of, what, February, something like that, am I right? That, that's right. I used to reckon that when the illuminations were finishing, which used to finish slightly earlier than they do now, sort of the last week in October, from then on it was head down to try and get what cod you could because your cod season had started at that time. How would you describe a typical day in the actual jumbo period from, say, Christmas onwards when the smaller fish had gone? I think you had to be patient. I think if you wanted a quick fix, then you might not do it. You could get one in your first hour or so, but the possibility is, as you fish through the tide, that it was going to be towards top water. That's when I seemed to think it was the best time just as it was slackening off before top water and you might even get one over top water and then a little time after top water after that you tend to struggle but you had to be prepared to sit there for a long while before you got any fish it wasn't that you were going to get a, a cod or chuck yeah i remember it sometimes waiting 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 freezing concentration going and then the bite comes and you, you're not prepared and you go and miss it yeah i remember one time that we're out with you and um, we got a beautiful sunset and we'd fished there all day 
and hadn't got a fish. Not a fish. And then you just have to mention, wouldn't that be a good backdrop for getting a good cod? And we got one, I think it was about £11 or something. But it made the day and that's what the winter fishing trips were like. Just takes one bite to turn the whole day around. So in effect then, when we mentioned the word consistency, it may have been consistent season on season, but it wasn't consistent trip on trip throughout each season. You could have good days, you could have bad days, and sometimes there'd be one after the other. You could get a good day, a bad day, a bad day, a good day. It wasn't like a run of good days and a run of poor days, apart from obviously the sizes of the tides. Personally, I always felt quite lucky. I think if I was out there, I had a chance of getting a fish, and thankfully, more often than not, I did. But you used to see a lot of boats that used to come in at the same time as you that didn't. So they weren't throwing themselves on the hook. You had to fish and fish hard. And I often think that the difference at that time was the bait. If the bait was right, you stood a chance. If you didn't, you were fighting against yourself, to be honest with you. I'll come back to you onto the bait situation in a minute. I've got a little, little story about uh, George Emsworth and the fresh frozen <laughs> bait. That needs to be dragged up. Uh, you mentioned being lucky, but... Was it really lucky, or was it other things? It doesn't matter what you have in your hand, it's what you're offering the fish that is the important thing. If you're not offering the fish what they want, then you're not going to catch any. And I think that is where the consistency comes in. If you get the good bait, then you stand a chance of getting the better fish. That was at that time. I think what people also need to appreciate is the fact that dinghy fishing was very much in its infancy back then. I mean, it was mainly small open boats, little seagull engines, no electronics whatsoever. That did come in towards the end, which we can expand on later. But basically, it was just the most basic of kits, very, very little support, and yet the fish were there and we got the fish. I used to have a little spot the ball, and basically the only thing that gave me was the depth. I used to be convinced that it helped me, but now... I don't even know how they work properly, just give something that don't really mean anything to you. So I think if you got on the right ground and it was heavy, you stood a chance of getting a fish. And yet to contrast that, Fleetwood had probably, I don't know, around about a dozen charter boats in those days, but they never really did very well on the big cod. Have you any thoughts on that? The only thing I can think it could be is that very often we're only fishing in about 35, 40 foot of water and I think the clatter that you get on um, a charter boat will tend to spook the fish a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I know we used to talk about the sing on the anchor rope, didn't we? You know, maybe pushing the fish to the side and when we started to throw the, the lines out to the side, the catches tended to improve a little bit. So maybe that was it, just the sheer noise. Also, I think, I don't know whether you you find this but personally I like to fish in a certain way and when you find there's a lot of people in a close area you can't always fish as comfortable as you would have liked to because you never feel right with what you're actually doing. Uptiding was very much in its infancy as well back then so I don't think that the people on the charter boats were, were really that much into the uptiding and I think also that the commitment and the, the investment even on a charter boat wasn't the same because if you've got 12 anglers on a boat with all the cost of the, of the trip and the bait and possibly a couple of fish coming up between them, it's not really going to send any good messages out, is it? So, so maybe the charter boats didn't catch them for that reason. People didn't put the effort in and they couldn't be bothered. That's absolutely true. And I think the beauty that where we used to fish is you could pick your weather, you could pick your better tides. Whereas often with the charter boats... You've got to book it weeks in advance or months in advance in some instances 
and it doesn't always work to your advantage because it, it we're fickle things anglers aren't we have the it's too light or it's too bright or it's too dull or it's too windy but you can that's pick your fishing isn't it? <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that's true but uh, you used to be able to pick your day so you could get out when you knew you had the best chance of uh, of scoring with a cod or two on the subject of charter boats, I remember coming in one day with Steve Lill and got a 30.5 pounder on board and we must have been talking on the VHF because we passed uh, Des White's lender hander and he called us over to show his angles just to show that it could be done. And then I got a phone call off a couple of days later saying, well, you know, I'd like to come out and see this. So we took him out on the next big tides, which happened to be fit, which is unusual, and Steve had a 30 and a quarter pounder in front of him. But <laughs> Still, he couldn't pass that information across to his anglers. He couldn't get his anglers to catch the fish. That, that's fishing, though. It's, it's again, if they all bring their own bait and he doesn't supply it, if they're not fishing with the right bait, then they weren't going to catch. They weren't easy to catch. You had to really work hard, but the rewards were there. Now, in the angling press at the time, obviously in the national angling press, it was all Blackpool, the Golden Mile, this, that and the other, but it wasn't actually Blackpool where the fish were, was it? It was further up the coast towards Russell Cleveland's area, maybe up to a couple of miles out. So can you give us a sort of a, a rough rundown where these fish were, what the ground was like, whereabouts geographically we were catching them? I think to be fair, I didn't get any cod down Blackpool Way. You know, it tended to be more sand-based down that particular end. Towards Russell, you had these oyster grounds. Uh, that had a lot of the heavy rocks and sometimes not a great deal but you could find little patches of boulders but for more often than not you're just fishing on uh, on shale and rubble and stuff like that and that's what the cod seemed to look for I think they came in to be honest with you to look for the crabs and other food that happened to be there and Russell was the perfect place for finding that sort of food Where do you think it starts to become heavy at Russell? It's somewhere down towards Cleveland and then progressively it, they used to do quite well behind the miners home there, didn't they? So they did, tended not to push much further south than the miners home. And then it was like that right up to Russell Point, really. And that was the heavy ground. That's where all the boats used to concentrate. I mean, I've seen that many boats out there that sometimes you felt you could just step from one boat onto yeah. the next and make your way out. You yeah, know? like a small boat car park. Yeah. And I suppose it was out to round about Shell Wharf area as well, Seawood. Although it wasn't the same distance off all the way along, it was like a, like a triangle from Russell Point to Shell Wharf, tapering down to maybe the miners' home. It got closer in, didn't it, as you got further south and onto the sand. I think what dictated some of that, though, Phil, was that, as you said earlier, we're only fishing in little open boats. And if you're talking about going four and five mile out, I'm not sure with the pace of my boat I would have liked to have done that. If it did happen to blow up, you needed to be pretty close in so that you could run for sure uh, pretty handy so we tended at that time with the boats and the, that we had is not to push it too far you used to push it to a mile but very often you used to get your fish within that mile from shore anyway I wonder why they came I mean why they actually turned up there is probably anybody's guess there's, there's no real depth to it there's no wrecks no no specific features or not very many of them anyway the odd bit of a gully, the odd bit of a lump here and there, but it was pretty, a pretty general area, just heavy ground. That is one of the mysteries, and that's what I've always pondered over, why run all that way across sandbanks and everything else to get to Russell. You know, it's as though the cod knew it was there, but clearly they, they wouldn't know that. And the theory was they used to come in onto that ground, uh, feed up with the crabs and whatever other food they could get through January, February, 
and then disappear off to the spawning grounds, which at the time everybody said was up at St Bees. I don't know where they got that information from. And people said they had marks as well. What do you make of that? I had a mark. Wrong. Sail out for ten minutes and drop me anchor and from the launching spot. In fact, I've took so much ribbing over that from you over the years yeah, that yeah. Now, now I actually do things differently. But in terms of actual marks themselves, I mean, I, I caught some cod one day, put a boy down, went back the next day, and people were catching them within a few hundred yards, but I wasn't getting them at that one spot. I don't think there were any specific marks, and we didn't have GPS, so nobody could return to a mark, so-called. Navstar came out part way through, but the inaccuracies of that were just unbelievable. Yeah. So I, I think people were actually kidding themselves when they said they had marks. And I think you're probably right. I tended to do what worked for me the time before, and it always seemed to come up trumps, you know. I recall coming one day, and um, it was in November, and we were only coming out at high water and fishing it down, and you'd already been out and foggy. fished the flood, and it was foggy. So we passed you on the way out, and you were having a move at that time, but I think you'd about 11 cod on board, just pushing doubles, and we carried on going, and I dropped anchor, and I think we would 11 or 12 on the flood, but you blanked on the ebb. Uh, sorry, we would 11 or 12 on the uh, ebb, but you blanked. But we pushed off a little bit further than you. And it, there was something about it. You'd sort of moved out to fish, and we'd gone uh, into fish, but we'd only fished the ebb. So it, it just... The, I don't think there is spots. You're in the right spot, you're in the wrong spot. Yeah, I can remember other times when we moved out to fish. I remember sitting tight one day and hearing people talking on the radio and you're thinking, no, I'm going to stay where I am, they'll come, they'll come. Nothing happened. You get desperate the last half hour or so, so I up anchored and moved. And people started catching where I'd just gone from. And where I went to, I still blanked. <laughs> yeah. So it, it was oh, very, very difficult to know where to go sometimes. But I, I really think that people were kidding themselves when they said they had marks. Yeah, and even then, I used to just drop anchor and wait and think to that the cod would come to you. If they were going to come, they were going to come. There wasn't much point in chasing fish. And when you used to watch other boats and they'd be moving here, there and everywhere, so you knew they weren't getting anything anyway. So you best just to sit to tie. But what I do recall is when we, with the advent of radio, we used to use ship to shore. If you mentioned that you got a cod, you couldn't move after that because all the other boats used to come and sit alongside you thinking you were in a special spot. Yeah. And it wasn't that yeah. at all just wasn't that. No, pretty much general areas really, wasn't it? And I know yours is right in front of Russell Church. There's had loads of good fish there over the years. Just a bit of a gentle slope onto fairly heavy ground. Why that one spot? I'm asking you why that one spot. I'm asking the cod why that one spot yeah. in the sense of why did they keep coming there? What was the attraction? Don't know. They came for my bait, Phil. No argument on that one there. <laughs> But the ground itself wasn't that heavy though, was it? It was heavy-ish, but it wasn't tackle-hungry, in the sense that the only time you tended to lose gear was when you swung either on the, on the, on the breeze or on the anchor when, it, when the tide was going round. You didn't lose a lot of gear, and there were also lots of white in there and dabs, so there must have been some clean stuff mixed in with it too. Yeah, I would describe it as small boulders, because once or twice, if you got any sort of sea, you could actually end up just slipping anchor and then biting again and then slipping again and biting again. So it wasn't very heavy ground that uh, your anchor was digging into. It was sort of riding off the boulders, you know. So, yeah, it wasn't heavy ground by any means. And you've got major estuaries at either end of the file. You've got wire and the loon at the north and the rubble at the south, so you've got lots of fine sediment. And that soon got stirred up into a really coloured soup when you had any sort of a wind. How important do you think the colour in the water was? Absolutely. 
when the water was clear or if it was a smallish tide, I know they, they sometimes go hand in hand, but if the water was too clear, you tended not to get the fish. And even then, the theory was that if the water was clear, the fish were coming up off the bottom and maybe fishing off white bait or something mid-water. Yeah, yeah. But the fishing used to die for some reason. You had to have coloured water to catch the fish. Yeah, to get them right down on the bottom, grubbing yeah. about and hunting by scent rather than by sight. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'll go with that one for sure. So the ideal situation then would be to blow from Monday to Thursday, settle on a Friday, fish all weekend and back to the, the blowing again on the Monday, but sadly that didn't really happen. I mean, on a west-facing course with a west with southwesterly air stream, you're going to get a lot of bad weather. But you didn't want it too rough. I recall on, on one occasion it was quite biggish tides, and uh, it absolutely got hammered, the beaches, so much so that they were going down and picking black lug off the beach at low water, and we got out after that and the fishing was dead. Yeah, too much food for them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so you didn't want it too bad. Yeah, but you wanted it to put a bit of a stir up, yeah. Yeah, keep that colour going all That's the time. That's it. And it was a case of grabbing what days you could as well, taking midweek trips, after dark sessions after work. We did a few of those. Never found that they worked as good as the daytime tides, funnily enough. It takes more effort, but didn't do any better at night. You think, because it's dark, you'll do better. Never found it to be the case. Still got fish, but mm. never vastly improved catches than what you would in the daytime. To be honest, I thought it wasn't as good. I mean, there's something that feels and looks right about night fishing, and yet, really, it didn't ever produce to the extent that you thought it would. I mean, I saw some nice fish, Pete Sharples on Kirsty 2, had one, I think it was £34. But generally speaking, bigger fish were a bonus on the night trips. You got more on the day trips. Have you any recollections? Yeah. Of good night trip? Yeah, I've done a few night trips, purely and simply to take advantage of the weather. If it was a calm spell, couldn't get out of work. But never vastly improved catches just the same basically just used to get a few fish like you would in the daytime but prefer to fish daytime my own view is that we were very often fishing in the wrong spots at night because i remember one particular trip where a bloke put a boat in must have only been about 30 he put like a little eggshell going in and he was that frightened of going out he stayed on the low watermark and we all chugged off to our usual spots fish did what we did came back in and he's some absolute monsters in that boat we were going over the fish the fish were coming into the low watermark and i think that very often you can sail over fish and i think that's where we missed out on the night trips and that could be right. They, they tend to do better off the beach at night, don't they? Because the fish come closer in and they set the night lines when they used to put the lines on the beach at night because the fish came closer in. So yeah, I can quite run with that one. I'm thinking back to some of those trips, there were some days when we really shouldn't have been out. When you'd be sailing now, you, you couldn't see in the dark, obviously. It was like sailing into an absolute black void, sailing off the edge of the earth in the depths of winter, look behind you, the street lights were there, or, or vanishing behind the swells some days, I seem to remember. You've no contact with anybody. We didn't have VHF in those days, certainly in the early days, anyway. You were sailing out into this absolute darkness with the glint of the moon shining on the edge of the waves, making them look very much bigger. I'm not sure I'd take that sort of a risk now. No, I, I wouldn't either. Certainly not in the boats that we did go out in. So, I, no, it's a bit older and wiser, Phil, older and wiser. I've got a couple of trips that stick in my mind, and one of them was with you, possibly both of them with you. And one of them, when he had that 13-foot rhino, which was a bit like fishing off a plank. A banana. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I remember launching on the beach there with two tillies going, and the swell was pounding in, swamped both tillies. You could taste the paraffin spewing out things in there. Got the boat going and uh, pushed off. The street lights were all vanishing at the back of us. Big swells, couldn't turn around, frightened of turning around, had to keep on going and uh, just, just sit it out. It did actually settle out in with a few fish, but very, very risky. If it had been daytime, you wouldn't have done it. 
Because we've all done it. <laughs> well, you couldn't see the way, is that no. the thing? So you just went and hoped for the best, and uh, sometimes it was okay, and sometimes it wasn't. Now, the second trip was uh, in January 1986. It was supposed to be the coldest night of the year. It was minus 26, absolutely breathless. There was no wind chill, so although it was cold, it didn't really feel that grim. I remember the trailer sliding down the beach sideways and the <laughs> sea was frozen for probably about 500 yards out, like a jigsaw with, with flexing pieces going over the very, very light swell. We pushed our way out, there was a big black line, you know where the street lights were shining back onto, a big black line going out there. And the fish had absolutely frozen, frozen solid on the top side, but also frozen onto the deck. Was you out that night? Yeah. Yeah, well, it, you expected it to be cold, but it wasn't because you could wrap no. up to it. Exactly. There was exactly. no windshield factor in it, was there? And then there were horrible cold days in the daytime too, some horrible, lumpy, freezing cold days. Water in the reel freezing up, water in the eyes of the rod, fingers that painful that you're hoping you don't catch another fish because you're going to have to deal with it. Especially if it was a whiting. Yeah, and that's, don't forget, this is in the open boats. <laughs> what do you reckon to the statement that winters back then were much colder? We saw a lot more freezing fog as well. I think they were more set out in them days in the fact that your fogs used to come around November time and they'd go cool but you didn't get your frost till the New Year. Now we're getting frost in December, aren't we? Only last year. And you think about what happened in December last year with the frost and the snow. Yeah. It was like that for a fortnight. In fact, you wouldn't have got your boat off the drive. No, I mean, it was an exceptionally cold winter last winter, but generally speaking, since, since the cod, the jumbo cod went, the winters have not, well, from my reckoning anyway, have not been as bad as what they used to be. They seem to have got milder, windier, just all blurring into one miserable yeah. dredge all the way through. At one time, you'd get freezing cold. Okay, it'd be lumpy sometimes and grey, but you'd got a lot of freezing fog too. I can remember loads of days sat out there waiting for gaps in the fog to see the street lights. Yeah. And no GPS, as I've already said back then, either to navigate back in the freezing fog, so you was at the mercy of the compass, sail east and you'll hit land. That's right. <laughs> and we've done that a few times and walked a few hundred yards to find out exactly. where Exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, walking up the beach to have a look at the top. Where am I? <laughs> Following the footsteps back across the sand to get to the boat. I don't think I'd do it now. Yeah. Thank it, it's GPS. funny, though, you know, with all this technology that we can make use of now in the boats the catches haven't improved no no not at all they've gone the other way in fact yeah. i can remember plenty of days when we come surfing in too with a big swell pushing in and with the little engine no control over the boat either just hit the beach and jump out yeah washing up sideways <laughs> getting swamped fighting to hold the boat handballing the trailer down no tractors no four-wheel drive no roller coaster trailers just a constant battle but enjoyable well didn't seem like it at the time, <laughs> The fishing was enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. Fighting. You, you used to go through that and then say, but I'd do it tomorrow if I got the chance. But um, handballing the boats was both up and down. Bottom of the slip, empty everything off when you're coming back in, take your outboard motor off, everybody shoving the boat up together, and then you get the next boat and the next boat, everybody meeting up. And the launching trolley was probably the most technical mechanical thing <laughs> we'd got, hadn't it? On the front just to get the boat down the beach. Uh, well, what I've done in the past as well, when you... When they, they've expected some winds, they put the boards in at the top of the slade. So you've had to lift the boat over the board, yeah. lift the trailer over the board, put your boat yeah. back on the trailer just to get it down the beach. Yeah, I remember that actually. Yeah, yeah, I all about that. that. Our main launching site was basically the five bar gate just in front of Russell Church, wasn't it? Down the gate along the top and yeah. then down the yeah. slipway, yeah. And when you look at that slip, it's a ramshackle, very steep actually. It is, it goes down in stages, mm. doesn't it? Yeah, and all handballing. But uh, that's all you had at the time. 
And then the wire walk-up came along. Yeah, it's about 30 years ago, that. I remember that coming in. I remember them getting some sort of a, an EU grant to actually build the lay-by and the slip, or do the slip-up, certainly. Well, in fact, I was on the committee of that, that, yeah. first, that first club. If the club hadn't have formed, we wouldn't have had the facilities of a slip that we had now, because it was put in for the uh, Wireboat Angling Club. And then, obviously, we, we used to have the place under, underneath the... Um, Oh, on the sea front there? Yeah, underneath. At the end of Victoria Road, yeah. it used to flood in, the no. water used to go in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or any sort of wind, and it, it'd be halfway up the doors, you know, so you yeah, have to scrape all the doors out. Yeah, I remember those days. Tractors in theory getting swamped and putting them on the pub car park when you, when you got a big tide or a big blow coming in. You know, I was on the founding committee with George Hemsworth and Frank B for that, oh, and then, then I moved over onto the Land Rover, then I joined the Fileboat Angling Club, then I joined Blackpool Boat Angling Club, and now I'm back. Yeah. Full circle. Yeah. Back with the wire. Happy days. Well, <laughs> yeah, apart from the fish. But, but I mean, but the facilities that we have now, from what we first had, you know, three people working together and talking to the council, you know, they've really kept us fishing off this coast, haven't they? Otherwise, we might have struggled a bit. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so as I said earlier, the, the sophisticated gear wasn't there. Sophisticated electronics and fishing gear wasn't there. But still, still the fishing was very, very good with lots of cod, but we'd also lots of whiting. There was lots and lots of pouting and poor cod, which obviously we didn't really want, but they were there at that stage. Good years for dabs. Loads of strapped conger as well. I seem mm -hmm. to remember that in the, in the early part of the winter. And I remember the odd big coalfish. You came in with one. Must have been over ten. Yeah. Caught on black lug, winter yeah. time. Yeah. All but, those fish are gone. But, yeah, but that was all open ground fishing. There was nothing that actually attracted one particular species. It attracted all the uh, species that we used to catch. It did, but it's not attracting them now. No. I wonder what's happened. Especially on the conger. Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? Yeah. You used to get loads of things pestered by them, dragging whiting off your hooks sometimes, or, or eating the whiting and getting hooked themselves. Nothing big. They always seem to be, I don't know, between sort of 7, 8, 10, 12 pounds, the odd one might have pushed 20, but there were lots of them, wasn't there? Mm. And the pouting had just completely disappeared. I've never seen a pouting off there for years, or a poor cod. Whiting fishing's really gone down there. It has. It's mainly, mainly smaller fish. And all you seem to get is hordes of dogs. Yeah, they've moved in well and truly, haven't they? Mm. From talking to Andy Bradbury, who obviously runs the charter boat out of Fleetwood, he was saying that the cod season seems to be more compressed into one, one shorter period of time. What cod before season Christmas. you get? That's right, all before Christmas. Yeah. And in the early part, you've got the dogs pestering you. And then... Uh, the, the, there's a window sort of between the end of October when the doggies are disappearing and the end of the year and that window of about eight weeks is when you get your coddling you can get some reasonable numbers during that period but into the new year they tend to thin out so just though they move off again and that's where the big ones used to come in and they don't anymore so your season's very short and compact now and it was mainly on the bigger tides too yeah so that was like like once a fortnight every other week was taken out of it in, in the sense that the smaller tides didn't seem to fish you could get the fish on the on the smaller tides in fact I remember you I'm sure you got one over 30 on a small tide on a neat tide. No, it was, um, yes, sorry. Yeah, it was. It was 30 pound, 31 pound, 10 ounce, you're right. That was February, I think, that. Mm. Yeah. And I was only out for a few hours. And my dad had one 18th, same day. And Tony Skinner and Jack was out in another boat and they didn't get a touch all day. Yeah, I mean, on the smaller tides, you could catch the fish just the same to a certain extent, but you've got this smaller window of opportunity where the tide only runs hard, hard enough in the, in the middle two hours, and so a lot of your time is obviously spent catching whiting, basically. But that but was the ebb. 
when I got that. Mm. It was the ad. Even worse then. Mm. Everything stacked against you doing it. Yeah. And you still I didn't did want to it. go. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I did not want to go that day. But the weather was so nice you had to. Yeah. I remember on a number of occasions, especially if you had any big fish in the boat, people would come over to take a look, obviously, as you'd expect them to do. And they'd, they'd always always be checking your gear out and, and accusing you of, of using a different trace to what was on the thing and what special bait you'd got. They couldn't accept the fact that what they saw was what there was. And we lived in land, obviously, so we were always on frozen bait. But they could not take it that you weren't using something special. You was putting this trace on the way back in just to sort of keep things under wraps. Well, and... Uh, I was even accused of dipping worms in something and they wanted to know what it was. A cod's mouth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a good one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, all this talk of secret rigs and secret baits. I mean, living in land, it was all frozen bait and the, the rigs were basically four feet of 50 pound mono with either a, a single 6-0 hook or whatever you fancied on the end or, or a panel rig. I mean, it was as simple as that, lobbed over the back very often. We used to do a little bit of uptiding, but it was mainly just lobbing over the back. And when you talk about baits, there's a debate that still goes on today between fresh and frozen, you know? Yeah, yeah, I've been involved in it many, many times. I mean, I remember George Hemsworth, he would not go to sea unless he got the fresh bait, and he used to get some monster cod on his lines on the beach, but he could not get them on the rod. And I remember going out with Mel Jackson and George Adamson. It was a day trip that turned into a night trip as well. We fished in the daytime with a few cod, all on frozen, yeah. We came into Cleveland's end of Victoria Road to get some chips for our tea to go back out again for the night session, and George came, and he gave us 40 fresh black, and uh, we, we obviously used them, and all I could catch on the damn things was whiting. <laughs> all this extra scent in the water attracting the small bear up as they were coming over snatching it all the time, so I put the, fra uh, the frozen back on, and had a cut of 18. Yeah. So, for me, frozen every time was the better bait, but you couldn't get that message across. You should have took his fresh bait off him and frozen it down. <laughs> <laughs> it the proper bait, yeah. One of the most memorable sessions I can remember was when we, we did five consecutive days off the... I was out all five, you was out all five. Sometimes we were in the same boat together, sometimes we were in our own separate boats. It was a real, well, typical typical week, I suppose, in many ways. It was a week of mixed fortunes. It was December time, 1982. One day, for example, we only had the one fish which you got, £19.5. Other days, we had quite a few, but on the very last day... I had a new crewman on board which you'd introduced me to, Garth, who's now sadly no longer with us. And this old lad rang me from Lancashire Evening Post. We used to send bits of things into the Evening Post and he worked for the Evening Post printing department and he picked up on this and wanted to buy a boat and he wanted to see what it was like. John Langton, you remember John yeah. Langton? Yeah. He came along and Garth came along. Both of the first time he went out, we launched at the church, we headed off. You anchored up first, we dropped on the other side of you. Oof, what a day. Yeah, what, that, what? I remember that one. Yeah, absolutely. It wasn't that flat either, was it? No, it wasn't. You're right. I remember we started off quite well with a few fish maybe into low doubles, then Garth got on about 19. Then he hooked into another fish which he was playing, which was obviously a really good fish. But his second rod started going. I grabbed his second rod, hooked the fish. He lost his big fish on the rod he'd got all of, so I passed the rod over to him. £38. Yeah. You were that close, Phil. I was that, that close. close. <laughs> Yeah, but I know what was on the end. He couldn't have prized it out now with a monkey wrench, I'll tell you. But anyway, yeah, what a day that was. Do you remember the competition that we used to have? Yeah. Biggest fish of the, of no, the season. No, no, I wasn't thinking that one. What? 50 cod. Oh, right. Five, five over no. ten. Yeah. And one over twenty. Yeah. You remember that? I do. And I, I got one, I, I got 65 cod that year. I got me five over ten. In fact, I think I had six or seven. 
and I got a 19 and a half and you wouldn't give it me <laughs> forget space you wouldn't give it me too right I wouldn't give it you <laughs> I remember that day with Garthor yes yeah it was on the rough side and uh, I'd got a purpose made landing net this huge landing net do you remember that yeah. enormous landing net I got well what had happened with that was that in the previous winter same year but in the January and February preceding it was when Steve got that 30 and a half pounder and then he got that 13 and a quarter with Des White from Lender Hander and both times it wouldn't fit in the landing net it was, it was like straddled across it wouldn't be it was that fat it wouldn't bend and fall down it's in it and it spun, it spun round and threw it back in so <laughs> I had to gill them in the end and lift them in so, so I had that net made and fortunately we had it on when Garth was on but unfortunately on another rough day we lost it over the side and it's probably still off there trawling somewhere on its own because <laughs> that was one hell of a monster net yeah I did that for me dad he had a belting fish on one year and the net wasn't big enough the tail went in but the head and everything was still hanging out and as I'm pulling towards it I said you have to take a bit of weight with your line dad and as he lifted his line take a bit of weight his line parted and that spun the net and off it went yeah. and that was well in the 20s it brought me on like that because that would have probably been my dad's best fish ever that he had a lot of hard luck your dad didn't he yeah. in that sense he, he, would, he would hook the fish what, what was it just over excitement winding his rag up to he used to get hooked into some good Fish. Mm. He, he had them over 20 but that big one always sort of uh, eluded him a little bit. Give us an insight into some of your better catches, your better individual fish and your trips to remember. Trips to remember, um, <laughs> funny thing is, was one day when you weren't out and I came round to your house to show you the catch and we had two over 20 and another 16 and you took a photograph of all the fish. In, or you took a photograph of the fish in front of the boat and it's the one that you put in the book you crouched down at the side of the boat that's right down. and it was that rona yeah it was that rona yeah but the fish that was on the photographs weren't all that we had we still had a lot of fish still in the boat but they were the best fish that we, we had the two over 20 and the one at 16 that was probably one of the better days that we've had off the foul coast collectively better days but what about individual fish? What were your best individual fish? Or how many 30s did you I've had two you? over 30. I've had, um, I was with you one day when I got 33. And then that day when you mentioned earlier where I got that one on that small tide on the head, that was £31.10. And if you remember, when we got the second one, that 33, we didn't put it over the radio because we knew what would happen. So we, we left it to top water before we actually said anything about it. And the best individual fish off there was uh, was on Frank B's boat, Mark Miller, that 42-pounder. And he was a novice, apparently. He begged a trip with Frank. Frank took him out, set him up with some gear, and he came up with that. And if I remember rightly, it was within a day or two of Garth getting his 38. Well, that 38-pounder was actually caught on the 3rd of December, and it had a row in it of five and a quarter pounds at that stage. So imagine what it might have done three months later, towards the end of February. But wasn't Garth's fish the best foul course cod up until that 42 because it, it came very close I it think he only re held a record for a few days and I think he got that one out towards Shell Wharf Oh Frank yeah yeah the 42 yeah pounds. possibly did yeah yeah I mean Frank's did the record still and Garth is still the second but there were quite a few I remember seeing some 36s and 34s quite a few 30s although not as many as what people think. I think that, that people have got their rose tinted glasses on sometimes and they think that the file was this sort of mecca where you could go out and you could just drag them out one after the other after the other and it wasn't like that at all. No, it you wasn't. could put a lot of 
a lot of hard working, a lot of blank time, a lot of freezing cold, getting battered, getting washed up the beach sideways, swamped. Thankfully, a lot of people put a lot more blank time in than we did. Than you did, especially. We used to get fish, it was for the board. You, you can't say who's going to get it once your bait's down there, it can be anybody's kind well, Why was it always you? Describe the kind of bites we got, they weren't all little bits of nips and tugs, although some of them were, but occasionally they would have the rod going over the back of the boat or lift the butt up in the air, they were real, when they got it they were going. That's true, and there was different types of bite, as you say, one time you, your rod would just go around, I used to fish with the rod, because it was an open boat, across the boat in front of me, so the end of the rod was yeah. out and the line was going off at a right angle. There were a couple of stoppers in the gunnels. That's right, Yeah. and sometimes the rod used to just start to bend and you pick it up, just wait and then strike. Other times you get the bite and you feel the fish and it'd start to go away and you'd strike and you'd miss it. And then if you put it straight back down again, often the fish would come back and have another go at it. And uh, I've had it where I've struck as many as three times before I've actually hooked the fish. So there were different bites, some were like little crab bites. Mm. Uh, so you can never tell with the bite what you're going to get on the end, but if you had the bite, you knew you was in with a chance of getting a better fish. I've been in danger of losing the, uh, the rod over the back once or twice, well, more than once or twice, but I remember in particular one day where the rod actually went over the back and, and the reel slammed against the, the gunnel at the back. I grabbed the rod, got all of it, brought it in, it was a cut about three pounds. Yeah. <laughs> you think, yeah, I mean, if it dragged your rod in, it would have been a, been a 30, but as it didn't, <laughs> just shows you, don't it, when that tie gets on the fish that it can really, really take off. That's that right, hand. that's right. No, but um, as long as your rod was in, you, it didn't matter about the bite, it was the end result that mattered. Now, as you said earlier, it was like a car park out there. I mean, odd days you'd get out there and there wasn't anywhere to slot in at all, wasn't it? It was absolutely crowded. You've got the Fileboard Club, the Wire, Blackpool Boat Angling Club, you've got privateers, people from Not End, Morecambe even. It was just an absolute mass of boats everywhere. But even that's changed. Yeah, you go now, middle of the week, and you, you're struggling to find another boat going out. It might happen when coddling started to come in, but um, th there's not as much enthusiasm as there used to be. No. Not, not taken as seriously. No, even on good days in winter where you expect to see people out, there's just maybe three, four, half a dozen, whatever. Yeah. Well, no, you went out a few times on your own last year, nobody else out, was there? That's true, yeah, we didn't get a lot for it, man. But, uh, mm, not, a, not a lot there, Phil, is No, it? but times have changed. But even back then, when there were all those boats out there, there still wouldn't be a lot of fish caught, or a lot of big fish caught, for the, for the number of boats that were out. But it was a chance of a fish of a lifetime, yeah. I suppose, and that was what spurred you on. I think the best numerical catch that I can remember taking part in was myself and Mickey Murrs fishing in front of the Royal with 12 doubles, not, not big doubles, but with 12 doubles on the boat in that in that one session. In fact, I've got a picture of them at home with the rod laid over them. That's rare. That's exactly, rare. exactly. You know, sometimes you talk to people and you think that that happened every trip, it didn't. No, You had to no. fish. You had to fish for them. I remember I were in got five good cod one day, uh, maybe two or three of them were in doubles, and I thought that was an exceptional day, mm. even at that. But, I mean, usually you get one or two really good fish and, and a few of the smaller ones, but... As I say, when, when people talk about it and look back now, they give the impression that it, well, there were fish everywhere, put your hand in the waters, one in every finger when you're lifting your hand back out. No, no, not like that at all. And then it started to uh, decline round, round about, I don't know, 85, 86. What can you remember of that, the way it progressively went? For the first few years after that, you still had the expectation that they would return all right, you've gone through a bad patch, but you have bad patches and you good patches. But uh, 
it took a few years to uh, for the penny to drop that the good times had really gone. He was always hopeful for that few years after that. And I must say it must be ten years now since I had a double figure fish off Russell. It's must more than ten for me. Must be ten. But, well, I got one sixteen, but it, I'm saying ten. But what would that put us at? Put it two thousand, wouldn't it? No, probably be longer than that. Probably longer than that. I seem to remember there was a small-scale revival came through within a year or two of the, of the decline and then it, everybody thought, oh, they're coming back again now, but it didn't last, it was just a short burst, can you not remember that? I seem to remember boats coming in with some decent fish, but just, just a few boats with a few decent fish, but really good fish, 20 to 30 mark, and then you're thinking, here we go, it's back again, but no. That day when I was out on my own, a new route, you came with, the, I think, see that 16-footer? It's only two years ago, two years ago, the 16-foot warrior that you had, not, yeah. not the one you've got now. That, that's probably oh, at least four years ago. The engine packed up. I remember, yeah. yeah but it right. was my steering that they'd yeah. gone with the yeah. frost. Yeah. And yeah. Um, he towed me out and he dropped me only about 150 yards offshore. I remember, yeah, up and towards Rosselway. I had an absolute beano and I got one 512 was the, my biggest and it won the, the cod competition for that year <laughs> now last year it didn't even get up to that size no. nobody weighed in last year wow so that's how bad it's gone but I remember after the uh, decline in the in the mid 80s mid to late 80s there'd be, there'd be seasons where all of a sudden you get a lot of small fish a lot pound pound and half and you'd be thinking right well next year when these come back they're going to be three four five and then they're going to be eight but it didn't, did no. it? It was just more pound and a half fish the following year, and then worse than that some years, it wasn't even the pound and a half fish. And that must be 89 years that we've thought that. Well, we've had fish, next year it could be better. It's never got there. The average now, if it had happened first time, would have been 10, 12 pounders, but we're still pound and a half, two pound, two and a half pound. And as I said, we've got the small light boards, the open bolts, the little spot the ball sounders, we've got the handheld. VHF, if you remember, part way yeah. through all that lot there. Uh, towards the end, probably Navstar came out, but you know, for most of it, it was just well, very, very basic with nothing except with plenty of fish. Yeah. And now, look, we've got everything. But it's not because we've got the technology we can go and find them, it's just that the fish aren't there? No. Now, I hinted at the beginning that there was a sort of a change taking place. I mean, everywhere I fished this summer, from sort of Aberystwyth up to up to up to our local area there everybody's talking about the numbers of cod there are on the inshore reefs small fish on the inshore reefs but there's plenty in the sort of 8 to 12 prime bracket out on the wrecks particularly in the St George's Channel more than the Pollock there seems to be a, a lot of cod moving in there whether that's a good omen for the winter and yourself you've said over on the Irish side mm -hmm, yeah it's a, definitely a revival where we went um, in June as well but just talking to the, the local charter skippers there, because obviously you think, well, if it's like this in summer, there must be good, better fish in winter. And he was saying, no, they get exactly the same size fish through the winter months. In fact, they said that they got a 16-pounder last year, and it was such a novelty because they don't get them that big that he ended up in the press. It was quite a celebrity for the guy that got it. So the, the big stamp of fish is still not there in the Irish Sea. A big stamp in terms of individual individual yeah. fish, but yeah. but the numbers of fish appear to be coming back. Now that happened in the North Sea probably about 
five, six years ago, didn't it? From a really low ebb, it seemed to come back all of a sudden. I just wonder if we're, if we're in for a burst like that, or is it going to be one of these, I don't know, these things that just fizzles out, you're expecting it, great expectations, you get out there, and again, for whatever reason, it doesn't happen. I don't know. But for that to happen, you need some fisheries policy. You know, I'm not going political on it, but uh, if, if you do nothing, nothing happens. You know, you've got to make things happen. Do I think we'll ever see them days again? Don't think so. Well, I've spoken to Andy Brad when I, when I podcasted him, and he thought that it would at some stage come back. I spoke to Frank B, and Frank B was absolutely adamant that it would come back. Now, what they're basing this on, I don't know, because I think that if the bigger fish are being taken out, obviously they will be kept back, won't they? And there's fewer of them. If the trawlers are getting them, what chance have we got to see them in shore anymore? But having said that, there was more trawling going on back then, and we saw those fish that we did. So how do you marry all this up? I, I don't know. It's just a case of, well, put your wages on and go out there and try. But the news isn't good, whatever you read, the press or anything else. You know, they tell us that we're in for lean times. Well, how much lean do they need to get before somebody says that this has to happen to make sure it, that we don't see the total extinction of the, the fish out there, you know? The, the only one thing that does seem to have made a comeback for the file is the bass. You know, but with the numbers that they seem to be taking out at the moment, how long can that last? Because they're such a slow-growing fish. But all this doom and gloom that you're talking about in the press, it's all the written word. When you talk to the actual skippers, like the chap at Aberystwyth, there was another one at Patheli. There was a chap at, uh, what was it, Port de Norway. There was Tony Parry at Rill, Andy Brad. They're all reporting lots and lots of cod knocking about, especially offshore on the wrecks and good fish too. So, with a bit of luck, we shall have to see, but I can't say I'm confident. No. There's not many compensations for being old, is there? But living through that lot and taking no, part in it is one of the... We were there when the fish were there. That's it, that's it. You know, I'm, I'm 60 next month. You're, you've turned 60. Are we going to see it? In another 50 years' time, and this podcast is being listened to for a research thing and everybody else is dead, at least we were there when the fish were. Oh, yeah. And, do you know, you show people pictures of the times and, and you tell them, that, yeah, the good old days. Well, no, I can show you photographs of it. Yeah, it did happen. I don't think it's ever going to come back. I don't think we'll see it. Not the cod. Not like it was. Sad. <laughs> <laughs>